bigger than that. Glory to God. All right. Uh, we're going to start a new sermon series that's going to last for 12 weeks as we go through the book of Galatians. And I have the privilege of starting us off. And uh, the book of Galatians, we call it a book, right? The New Testament is made out of books and the Bible is made up of books, but there's all kinds of different types of literature in the Bible. What we're going to be looking at today is one of those types. If we break down all the books of the Bible, uh, there's different types of of literature that's brought across to us. Some of that literature is historical in nature. Some of it is poetic in nature. Some of it is prophetic in nature. And sometimes the type of uh, literature that we read is correspondence, like a letter. And this is what Galatians is. It's, it's one of the many letters that the apostle Paul wrote in the first century, um, in this case, to a church. Paul sometimes writes to churches that he establishes during his missionary journeys. Sometimes he writes letters to individuals, and we get to read this correspondence, private at first, but meant, uh, especially the letter to the Galatians, was meant to be publicly consumed, and we get to do that today. But before I jump into that, I want to tell you about my neighbor, uh, my neighbor, Virginie. Uh, I just want to make sure before I go into that, I'm trying something different today in Zoom. I'm trying to present my my slides as a background. I just want to make sure, Nick, that, that everybody can see that, that you could see me and that you could see my slides. It looks great, Louis. I think uh, if anybody uh, would want to just raise a thumbs up if, you, if you, you're enjoying this. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> just want to make sure you could see. Uh, encouragement is good, Louis. <laughs> thumbs sure. up. Please. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Great. Uh, Virginie. Virginie is uh, my neighbor. She lives a couple doors down and uh, she's a Francophone. We've, Kelly and I have known her and her husband for as long as we lived here, so about 15 years. And in fact, we're going to spend some time outside and at a distance with them uh, later today. She asks all kind of questions to Kelly and I about English because she's fascinated by it. For example, one of the things that you see to my, uh, to my left over here, uh, you'll see that uh, in the first image, Hopefully you get the idea, but uh, it, that is a picture of a date. In the second image is a picture of a couple, a man and a woman, and they're on a date. And in the third image, we are looking at a calendar, but what we're circling over there is a date. All these same three things are a date. Very difficult for a non-native speaker to get a sense of how all these three things can sound exactly the same. It's the same word. Um, we're talking about the fundamentals of the English language. Um, when we look at the gospel uh, message, which is fundamentally what the entire letter of uh, Galatians is about, it's about the fundamentals of the gospel. But just because something is fundamental doesn't mean that it's basic. Just because it's um, it's elementary. It's, it's, the, it's the initial building block of, of understanding or knowledge in something. It doesn't mean that it's easy or straightforward. Let's look at another example that Virginie brought to me. She said, Louis, look at all these words. They all look the same, but they sound completely different. I should get Medico to unmute himself and to try and read through each of these words. Cough, dough, plow, ought. Thorough. They sound completely different, but the spelling looks so identical. This is fundamental 
to the English language, the pronunciation of letters that are put together as words, but it's not basic. One last example. These are all parts of fundamental English grammar. And in fact, you find similar concepts in other uh, Latin-based languages like French and Spanish, uh, French and Spanish and, and Portuguese. French is not a language. A gerund, a determiner, a preposition, the subjunctive tense, the concept of modality. You might be listening right now and saying, I have, I have no idea what those things are. You might not be able to define the terms, but if you're a native English speaker, I guarantee you yet that you use these things almost intuitively. And if we were to ask you, how did you ever come to know these things, you wouldn't remember anymore. They're so fundamental that, um, that you use them absolutely naturally. These fundamentals of the English language, we, we approach them the same way that we would approach the fundamentals of the gospel message. Now, you might be listening to this message today, and perhaps uh, when you hear the term the gospel, this is something that you've heard of before. It's a term, but you wouldn't be able to identify it yourself. Maybe you're uh, a friend or a relative of someone who attends this church uh, or a neighbor, or perhaps uh, uh, perhaps you're younger, perhaps you're not attending Sunday school today and you've heard of the gospel, you, you've, you're familiar with the word, but you wouldn't be able to uh, define it yourself. Or maybe you have been a Christian for so long that you think you know the gospel, you think you'd be able to tell it, but I guarantee you that if I were to bring 12 Christians from our church or from any other church in the city of Montreal or any, any members of the Christian faith across the world, if I were to bring 12 of these believers together and ask each of them what the gospel message is, uh, I wouldn't say that they would all be uh, completely contradictory to one another, but there would be nuanced differences. We wonder, what is the true gospel? If we go back to the gospel message um, that we see uh, communicated by the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, would they agree with one another? Would they tell the same gospel message? And what does it mean to add more to the gospel message, which is precisely the reason why the apostle Paul wrote his letter to the church in Galatia? We're going to be looking at these fundamentals over the next 12 weeks. Now, I broke this down. Uh, the entire letter that Paul writes to the Galatians uh, is represented in the Bible as a book of the New Testament, and it has six chapters. We could break down the entire um, book of Galatians into three, three broad categories of, of content, and I won't be going uh, point by point in each of these boxes, but each bullet point represents one week that we'll be going through. The first two chapters of the book of Galatians goes over the plan that God the Father has. Uh, when we read certain passages from scriptures, all we get is, is kind of a little, uh, a little photograph or a vignette. But what Paul does in the entire book of Galatians, uh, you can imagine a draftsman at a, draft, a draftsman's table unrolling or unraveling an entire blueprint. We get to see the entirety of God the Father's plan and how uh, it works out from beginning to middle to end uh, to forever. This, the next two chapters 
uh, Galatians chapter three and, and chapter four talk about the implications of that plan. When we understand what the gospel message is in Galatians one and two, we learn that we're part of a family that Jesus leads. And what does it mean to be a part of this family? In the last two chapters, we'll find that uh, an age has come to pass. The age of the law has come to pass. It is over and we enter into a new age, an age that is um, demarked by the presence of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? What are, the, what are the responsibilities that we might have? What are the implications for us living in that age? We're going to find out all about these things over that period of time, that 12-week period of time. Today, we're just looking at the very first bullet point, Galatians chapter 1, the uniqueness of the gospel. Let me jump into the text that we have. We're just going through nine verses of Galatians today. Uh, I'll start reading. This is all uh, from the New International Version uh, translation of the Bible. <clears throat> Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me. This is the introduction of the letter. It's from Paul who is an apostle, and he writes to the churches in Galatia. He presents his greetings. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's it. Uh, compared to other letters that Paul writes, the introduction and greetings that he has is incredibly short, and he jumps straight into his the purpose of his letter with extremely strong language in verse 6. Um, a small parenthetical statement here. What, the Apostle Paul had a very uh, large ministry that largely included him going on missionary journeys, leaving uh, throughout... Um, the Mediterranean and the Middle East, visiting different uh, geographical locations. He would set up churches, he would plant churches, he would help that church, that new church community to establish uh, elders, leadership, uh, leadership structure for that church, and then he would leave pretty much soon after, and he would write back to them as he received news about them and write to them uh, as a way to continue his ministry, and that's what he's doing here. He's already been to this church before. He's helped them get established. He's heard about what's going on there, and now he writes them from abroad, and it's a very corrective tone. Verse 6 says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ, and that you are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Now, evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, now I say it again. If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you expected, let them be under God's curse. That is the entirety of our passage today. We will be looking at the uniqueness of the gospel message and how it is meant to be kept unique, to be kept pure, to be kept encapsulated into the components that, that comprise the gospel and that adding anything to that gospel message, Paul says, is a perversion of the gospel of Christ. It is, is intended to confuse you and me. 
and anyone who would attempt to intentionally pervert the gospel message that way by adding to it um, is deserving of, uh, of a curse from God himself. Now, in preparation of this message, I, uh, I did some reading of my own within the scriptures, of course, but also from uh, some, some theologians. One of those theologians is N.T. Wright, who we, we reference quite often here at RBC. Uh, he is uh, a, an English, a British theologian and scholar. He wrote an entire biography on the Apostle Paul in 2018. Now, N.T. Wright dates the, Paul's writing to the Galatian church at about 48 AD. This is roughly 12 to 15 years after Jesus' ministry on earth, after he was crucified and rose from the dead and is documented to have ascended back into heaven. Um, Paul references in these first couple verses the fact that he had already, in verse 8, I believe, <clears throat> uh, had already preached a, a gospel to them. Uh, to, that is to the church in Galatia. Well, when did that happen? When did Paul preach this gospel to the church in Galatia? Uh, this most likely happened, uh, N.T. Wright would say. Um, it's documented in Acts chapter 13, and it probably happened about a year prior, where Paul would have visited uh, the region of uh, South Galatia. Now, Galatia is a Roman province. It's situated in what would probably be modern-day Turkey. Uh, he would have visited that in, uh, area in about 47 AD. He would have preached the gospel to them as documented in Acts chapter 13, and one year later would have written this corrective letter to them um, in 48 AD. I want to spend some time looking at the gospel message that Paul presented in Acts chapter 13 so we get a sense of what exactly did he communicate them? What is the gospel according to Paul? So we're going to jump there. We're going to spend some time in this text of Acts 13. And as I go through this, we'll look at the main elements of the gospel uh, according to Paul as he preached to the church in Galatia. Now, we flip over to Acts 13. We're starting at verse 16. The scenario is that Paul had, uh, had spent some time in Galatia. He had been uh, attending the synagogue, which is where... Uh, where Jewish and Gentile Christian believers would be meeting to, in the synagogue. And at the end of the service, uh, the elders, the leaders of the synagogue, uh, extended an invitation to Paul to share an exhortation, to share a word, to share a message with them. In verse 16, Paul stands up, motions with his hand as he begins this, this great message that he had prepared for. He's, he's here for a reason. He addresses fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who all together worship God. He, 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 he clearly identifies and separates two different um, uh, audiences. Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave uh, them judges 
until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, that is David, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, from David's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Now, why is Paul spending all this time deliberating on the, the, the history? Like they, these, these, um, these uh, synagogue leaders asked him for a word, and he's giving them a history lesson. Paul's first point in, in presenting the gospel is this message, that Jesus is the promised king. There was a time in Israel's history where they were not led, their, their political structure, their governance structure was not, uh, did not have an executive branch. There was no king like the other nations. God had prophets. Uh, God had a legislative branch through Moses. They, they wrote laws. There was a judiciary. Uh, the, the 12 tribes of Israel were, were somewhat adjudicated by judges when, when, when the Jews followed their law and there was found to be an infraction in the law, they brought them to judges, but there was no king and the people wanted a king. God gave them Saul as the very first king. And then David came. And there's a lot written about David in the Old Testament and about David's seed, a king who would come that would be like David, but who would reign forever. Paul's message uh, begins and culminates at this fruition that Jesus is this promised king. Let's move on. Paul continues, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, that same construct as before, Paul is picking two different audience types. It is to us, to all of us, that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have Jesus executed. When they had carried out all that had been written about him, they took Jesus from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they are now witnesses to our people. Folks, we tell you the good news. What God has promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. Jesus is the promised king. And the next message of the gospel that Paul presents is that this kingdom of God in which Jesus has king, is made king, that kingdom has now come. The text continues. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, through Jesus, everyone who believes is set free from sin. A justification this is a legal term we'll hear about in the coming weeks, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. The next two components of the gospel message are this. We can't save ourselves. 
there is a Venn diagram. There are two circles, one representing our sin, one representing God's holiness. These two circles have no way to intersect with one another. We cannot find commonality with God. We cannot somehow bring our, our circle representing our sin to, to get into God's bubble where his holiness is because he is defined by an absence of sin. The only way for us to save ourselves and to rejoin God would be for God to take action, not for us to take action. We can't save ourselves, but Jesus can save those who repent and who believe. Paul continues his, his exhortation. Take care what the prophets have said does not happen to you. This is what the prophet said. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. For I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone were to tell you. I'm going to skip to the end of the passage for the sake of time. This, Paul says, is what the Lord has commanded us to do. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The last component in this passage of the entire gospel message that Paul brought to the church in Galatia is that kingdom life, this kingdom that God describes, is this kingdom life with the spirit is not something that is far away off in the future. It's already beginning. Jesus has already instantiated this kingdom and is leading this kingdom, and he is inviting the spirit to come and lead this age. It is no longer the age of the law. It's the age of the spirit. So these are the main five points of the gospel message, according to Paul. But Paul isn't um, an apostle in the same way that the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are apostles, not exactly the same. Those four gospel writers were disciples who were physically approached by Jesus and who, who physically participated with Jesus in his ministry. They followed Jesus wherever he went. They heard Jesus preach the gospel. They heard Jesus talk about the kingdom as he went from place to place in his three-year earthly ministry. Paul wasn't there for that. Paul met Jesus after Jesus died and rose again and uh, ascended into heaven. And the, the book of Acts also describes how that encounter took place on the road to Damascus. And you're gonna hear more about Paul's credentials and Paul's experiences next week and in the weeks uh, after that. The point is that in uh, this encounter that, that Paul has with Jesus, something is communicated. Paul learns, and, and it is an, an apostle by virtue of the fact that he met Jesus in this exceptional and unique way. We don't know what Jesus told him largely. We don't know how, what specifically Jesus told Paul regarding the gospel. But what we can do is go back to the gospels themselves and hear how Jesus preached the gospel. Listen to this word. Uh, I'm jumping ahead a little bit till next week's passage, but in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 12, Paul qualifies I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I didn't receive it from any man, I didn't receive it from the gospel writers, uh, nor was I taught it. 
Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Let's jump ahead quickly to how Jesus presented the gospel himself in each of the four gospels. The first thing that Jesus revealed to us in the gospels is that he is the promised king. You see this primarily in Mark chapter 14, verses 61 and 62. He is being interrogated by the Jewish high priest who asked him, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed one? Jesus unequivocally says, I am. And more than that, you will see, you will see me. You will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one of God, the father and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is a kingly statement. This is a prophetic statement that Jesus personally identifies with. And there are more scripture verses on the bottom. If you want to come back to this later, these, these are uh, scripture verses from other gospels uh, that agree with this statement. Uh, and these are the words of Jesus himself. You'll notice that I've, uh, I've selected some of the text here and colored it in red. That's to indicate that these are words that Jesus spoke himself. Jesus says he is, in fact, the promised king. Jesus also says that God's promised kingdom has come. Jesus also spent time visiting synagogues, and he was given the opportunity to read some scripture in the synagogue as described by the gospel writer Luke in Luke chapter four. Jesus stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where this is written, and he read it. It's a prophetic statement written by the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years prior to the time that Jesus was reading it. Jesus read, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus then rolled the scroll back up and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. I bet that in that moment, you could hear a pin drop. Jesus began by saying to them, today, this scripture that I just read is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus, the fulfillment he's talking about is himself. The kingdom has come. You can read more about this in Mark and Luke. Jesus also uh, emphasizes uh, in the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew chapter five, that we can't save ourselves, but he can save us. Notice that Jesus says here, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, that is the Mosaic law. I haven't come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is saying here is kind of, it's kind of a dare. Hey, if you think that you can fulfill all the law that Moses had written without ever breaking it once? Yes, of course, you will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The point is, you can't do that. I can't do that. 
we cannot fulfill the law. It, the law is there to bring to the surface the, the, or to our consciousness the reality of our sin, the reality that we can't save ourselves. But Jesus can save us. Jesus also indicates that salvation through him is available to all who repent and believe. John chapter 3, verse 16 is arguably the most famous passage of scripture and the most often quoted passage of scripture. But I find that it is so much more impactful if you were to read the verses prior and, and after uh, John 3, 16. Jesus says this, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, a story that we read about in the Old Testament, so it's true that the Son of Man must be lifted up on the cross, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God didn't send his Son into the world to condemn the world. God sent his Son into the world to save the world through him. Make no mistake, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. The last thing that Jesus taught was that kingdom life with the spirit has already begun. You could find this in John 16, and there are just a ton of verses that back this up throughout the other gospels. Jesus says this, very truly, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, that is the Holy Spirit, he will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people don't believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He won't speak on his own. He'll speak only what he hears and he'll tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it's from me, from Jesus, that the Holy Spirit will receive what he'll make known to you. This is the gospel message. The gospel according to Paul and Jesus. They agree with one another. I don't know how Paul got his message from Jesus, but going, comparing how Paul presented the gospel to the church in Galatia and comparing how Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God himself in the gospels, they agree with one another. The gospel is this. Jesus is the promised king. The kingdom that he is a king of has finally come. We can't save ourselves. Only Jesus can save us. And salvation is available to those who repent and believe in him. And that kingdom life, the spirit, is not something that's far off in the future, although it will be, but it already started. We are already a part of that kingdom now. Tim Keller, who is um, uh, an American uh, pastor, uh, and has written many books, including a great book on the book of Galatians, by the way, which is called Galatians for You. He writes this, that the gospel message boils down to this. We are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. 
So if you're wondering what the gospel message is, the same way that you might have been wondering what a gerund was, these are the fundamentals of the gospel here, according to Paul and Jesus, as we find in the word of God. Now, as I conclude, I want to look at the reason for Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. What happened that he needed to correct? What happened was that some of the Christians there, particularly the Jewish, the Jewish Christians, not the Gentile Christians, they, uh, they gave the impression and began to teach that, yes, the gospel message included what you see on the left side of the screen, those five main points, but they added to it the fact that you would still need to follow the law of Moses to be a true Christian, to be fully accepted uh, into the family of God and made righteous again, you would need to become circumcised. You would need to participate in Jewish ritual cleansing, as we would read in the Torah, in the Old Testament law, and you would need to follow dietary restrictions. Paul says that this is a perversion. This is adding to the work that God has done on the left-hand side, as if to say, yeah, sure, God, you set up your kingdom. You set up Jesus as a king, just like you promised. You died on the cross, Jesus, and rose, God rose you from the dead. You are alive today, and you can save us just from believing. And that almost takes us across the line into righteousness. But you know what really brings us, you know, it, it's not quite there. What really brings us across the line is that we wash our hands. What really uh, brings us across the line into righteousness is that we perform circumcision on each other. It sounds ludicrous when we put it that way, but, but Paul is charging them by, by, that by adding to the gospel message that way, you're actually diluting it. You are... Uh, you are perverting it. You are making it so much smaller than how it is. The gospel message is, um, is fundamental. It is basic in the sense that there's, there's not much there. It's, it's simple, maybe, I could say. But at the same time, it's also incredibly complex and incredibly huge. How dare, uh, you know, how dare we reduce the gospel message to something so elemental? Uh, Tim Keller also writes in his uh, analysis of the church in Galatia in the first century that their spiritual problem is twofold. First, it's not only caused by them failing to live in obedience to God. They did. They could not live up to the law. That was one part of their spiritual problem. But the other problem, ironically, is that they made obedience in him the, the primary element of their salvation. Uh, they relied too much on obedience to be what saves them, when in fact, it's not obedience, it's belief, it's faith in the saving work of Jesus. This was how the gospel was perverted in the first century. What about the 21st century? This is my last point. I want to suggest this, hopefully it's not, it's not uh, too shocking, but we too will look at the left-hand side. We too will look at those fundamental elements of the gospel message. And I wonder if it's possible for those of us who've been Christians for a very long time, deep down, you know, subconsciously, deep down in our hearts, might we add things to the gospel message that might think that our political stances on certain things, like uh, how we stand on abortion rights, that abortion is wrong and it's murder, 
might we make that a, a critical element for truly, really being a Christian, really being part of a family of God? Might our, our stances on uh, how, to what extent we might be inclusive towards the homosexual community or those who have different uh, non-traditional gender identities, might we take our stance on a topic like that and add it to the fundamental gospel message that real Christians would hold on to these things. And if you don't for any reason, I'm not so sure you and I follow the same Jesus. I'm not so sure I'll see you in heaven. Our stance on social justice, practicing social justice, even something like reading the Bible and regularly attending church. Folks, don't get me wrong. These, these are all, it's normal for a Christian to apply their worldview, their Christian worldview towards politics, it's great to read the Bible and to attend church physically. But if we turn these things, if we pervert these things into being essential elements of the gospel, that if you don't practice this, then the work that you see on the left-hand side of Jesus is not enough, then I propose that we are just as guilty of perverting the gospel as the Jewish believers in the first century church. And the warning that I have for us is to be careful, to check ourselves, to check our mindset. Is the gospel message in its purest form enough? Or, or might we carry the, the, the thought pattern that more is required? If so, then Paul says that we are guilty of the same curse that he believes that the first century Jewish believers are guilty of. I want, to, I want to close by encouraging us that the gospel message is simple and it's enough, but it's also massive and it's complex. The fundamentals of the gospel are enough for us, but be careful about the things that may seem completely benign. Don't don't make such a big deal to them that they become part of the gospel message itself. Those are not requirements for being saved. Just let me pray for a moment and then uh, I'll release us. Lord God, thank you so much for not only having a plan for us, but by revealing that plan to us. That, that millennia ago, you were aware of the rebellion that would take place in our hearts, how we would uh, how we would commit the first sins that would completely separate us from your holiness, that would not allow for any interaction to take place between us. Thank you for putting a plan in place that would bring us back to you, that would make us right again with you, that would make us a part of your family again, that would make us a part of your kingdom. Lord, um, uh, make these words... Uh, true to our, uh, us in our hearts by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, more than what I could do as a mere human. Uh, Lord, to those of us who have known you for a long time, my prayer is that you would, you would convict our hearts to keep the gospel message as you intended it and not to add more to it. Let us not become legalistic, Lord. To those of us who have never heard the gospel message before or to whom it might have been confusing, Lord, I pray that you would reveal the simplicity of your gospel message, that all it takes is belief in the work and personhood and godhood of Jesus that you have set up. Lord, I pray that you would bless us in the next 12 weeks as we read through um, the, the, the letter of Paul to the church in Galatia. Lord, may we not just learn something, but may, may, 
may our hearts be transformed, may our thoughts and our actions, behaviors be transformed so that we might be more like your son, Jesus. Thank you for your word. We love you.